Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. Thank you for tuning in to Tuesdays with Andrea Podcast Season 3. I'm excited to share with you the guest today. The guest is Eric Larson. He's a colleague of mine at CompTIA. We've both been in the nonprofit space working together for about what, six, seven years now. Sounds about right. And uh, he's also a new author. And we're going to talk to him and, and understand his story, his life experiences, and extract any words of wisdom and insight and parallels that we might be able to draw um, from his story. So I'm excited to talk with you today, Eric. I'm excited too. Thanks for having me here. This is what a great studio, what a great podcast you've got going here. So I'm, I'm really honored. Thank you. Likewise, thank you for making the drive to my home. My pleasure. <laughs> so let's start with the book, because this is the newest project yeah. that you released. It's called Soft Hearts. It's a mystery novel. And you recently self-published this book. This is your third novel, but the first self-published, correct? Right. This is the first book I've written that I thought was ready for mass production, if you will. And what inspired you to write it? So I'd been working on fiction really since I was really little. I took a lot of classes in college, workshops, if you will, with other student writers. Uh, We had some fantastic professors instructing us, won some awards, was really encouraged by that, started a writing routine in the mornings primarily. First, uh, I guess in the 90s, I was writing a lot of screenplays because that was the, uh, the time when when spec screenplays were hot. Like you could write a screenplay and sell it to Hollywood for a million dollars. And you're like, I'm jumping on that ship. <clears throat> yeah. And, 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 and honestly, it wasn't just chasing the money. There was also a methodology to that because if you were writing screenplays, you had a definite form. You had a roughly, you know, 90 to 120 pages to tell a story basically through dialogue and picture. Movies, are, are just that. It's what you can hear the actor saying and what you can see on the screen. Not a lot of interiority going on in terms of what in, what's in the character's head. But what that did do is really help me with dialogue, mm-hmm. really help my, my ear for dialogue, and also to think in terms of scene and to think visually as well. It's writing screenplays. Writing screenplays. Um, and I ended up just as an aside, um, going into video production at one point for myself and writing short scripts and producing those for clients or for various, um, the 48 hour film festival is sort of a competition in some cities where you, you have 48 hours to write a short seven minute, um, movie and produce it with, um, with your friends about, Oh, I don't know, about 20 years ago, I, I went back to writing prose fiction um, wrote a couple literary novels. The last one I tried really hard to find an agent for, that was taking a long time. And, and I just um, got a little bit frustrated and I thought, well, maybe I should write something that has a ready audience. I ran into a friend who had written several mysteries. 
had been traditionally published for those mysteries, but had become frustrated with her publishers, ended up buying back the rights to those books and self-publishing them herself and then, and then self-publishing several more. And so just hearing her enthusiasm for self-publishing, uh, knowing that she could be a mentor to me, um, she said, Eric, you know, you can do everything that a, a traditional publisher can do these days. And what's even better is that you, you retain the rights yeah. to that. And you have the control, frankly, to uh, promote it the way you want, to hire a cover artist and get the cover just the way you want it um, and not be beholden to uh, a company. And in fact, you could per, per book, you can actually make more money on every sale. But I like the idea of being sort of the master of my own destiny in that regard and also not having to uh, wait for someone on the outside to take an interest. I hired my own editors. I had lots of readers. So I knew when it was ready. I knew when, when, it, when I was consistently getting two thumbs up uh, instead of, you know, maybe one thumb up and one thumb down, <laughs> I knew I was, I was close. And then it was just a matter of honing every single word and sentence. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was a process in and of itself. But, um, by that time I had a lot of confidence in the story. And so I was able to get it to the point where, um, I felt really good. How long did it take you? So when did you start writing this novel? Was it, did it always live inside of you? Did, was it inspired by, you know, current events or something in your past? How did this story come to life from, from, you know, the brain that you have? Like, yeah. how did you put, put pen to paper? Yeah. So for, you know, I think it helps to have done a lot of writing to, you know, so just the fact that I'd exercised those muscles over the years, not on necessarily an everyday basis, but mostly most weeks, most, most days. Um, I set out to write initially, honestly, a really lighthearted, cozy mystery, maybe 60,000 words. So very short novel. Um, however, this story became a little more involved and, and um, I would say that it was just layers, adding one layer at a time. Um, it builds complexity, both in terms of the characters and the plot and the uh, themes of the story. So I needed a sleuth. I needed a, an amateur sleuth and um, I needed to, to um, find a setting. And, you know, one thing leads to another. So I, I, I decided to set the uh, story in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I live. Um, I wanted um, the sleuth for this for the genre. The sleuth almost always needs to be a woman. Uh, Why? Why women? Always. Well, most of the readers are women. Okay. Uh, I mean, I mean, seriously, most buyers of books and readers of books are women. Um, and then, but then also, um, it's a challenge for me to to write from a woman's viewpoint. Yeah, because you got to get into the woman's psyche. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, some people say, "Well, that's really hard." I say, "Well, you know, Agatha Christie wrote from Hercule." Pro Rose point of view, uh, you know, turnabout's fair play. You know, I've, I've had, you know, I was raised by both parents, including a woman, my mother. Uh, I've had female friends over the years. I've been married to a woman for 20 years. <laughs> you're like, I know women. <laughs> I know, especially, you know, when you're married to someone who's as expressive as my wife is, it's like- I, So I, expressive, I love your wife. Yeah, thanks, and she loves you. And she, she says, hello. And-, and Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're, you know, we, it was, uh, it came naturally, um, 
to a large degree. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I would say that women um, are by and large more expressive of their feelings and emotions. Uh, men have them too. They're just not- <laughs> Do <as> they? <laughs> do they? <laughs> we think they do. We've sent a probe out uh, to see if indeed they do, but um, maybe they'll come back with some data. But yeah, they, it's, it's um, in, a, in a way, it's easier to write from a woman's point of view for that reason, because women are more expressive and more in touch in general with their emotions. And that makes for interesting reading. Mm -hmm. um, reading just, you know, uh, you know, from the perspective of a stoic who doesn't really express much in what they say or even maybe what they think uh, consciously um, would make for perhaps less interesting reading. Um, for this story, I really wanted someone who was undergoing some kind of um, challenge. Uh, Rhett, at the beginning of the story, she's going through a divorce. Uh, in North Carolina, you have to wait a year as, as a separated couple before you can formally divorce. Uh, so she's in the 10th or 11th month of, of that. She's, uh, she's been drinking too much. She's been kind of isolated from her friends. And um, that's sort of where we meet Rhett. And she meets some interesting um, characters at a place called Needless Necessities, which is a sort of a, a place where artists go for um, materials mm -hmm. for their art. So that's where she finds a community. And then the other thing that happens that's very dramatic is there's, um, there's an actual homicide in her uh, neighborhood on Halloween. Mm -hmm. So those two things acting together can rock her world. And that's where the story um, begins. So how long was the process from, hey, I have this story in my head, I'm going to start the, the practice of writing it, to publishing? Um, it was, I'll say three years. Now that's a little bit, that's a little bit misleading in that I actually worked a lot on book two while I was working on book one. So had I just simply focused on book one, I may have, I may have had it published sooner. Um, but I would say that um, most writing is rewriting. Mm -hmm. And also there's a process there where you're, you're, you, you work hard on a draft. Uh, you have to leave it aside for a while so you can come back to it fresh. And I would say uh, also um, you really want other people to give you feedback. So um, editors I hired or um, friends uh, who, who served as beta readers, you got to give them time to read the book and get back to you. So that, that lengthens the, time, the, the process of getting a book ready. Mm -hmm. for publication. And then I also gave myself some extra time just so I didn't feel a tremendous amount of pressure because I've got a lot going on mm -hmm. that's just as important. Yeah. As you my still book. are, uh, can have a nonprofit career, you're a husband, you're a dad, you're active in your community and you're still writing on the side. So, so I would say that, you know, people find that to be like, how do you possibly do that? But I'm a morning person. I, I wake up around six o'clock and it's a couple hours at least before I need to be in front of the computer. Uh, I don't have a commute, so that helps. Uh, my family isn't up at that hour for the most part. Um, so some people go for a, a morning swim uh, or they um, you know, do any number of things, write in their journal. Mm -hmm. um, or scroll their phone or yeah, read the news. Yeah. Oh. Uh, you know, I, I think it's amazing. You know, Ray Bradbury is a writer I always admired. Um, He's since passed away, but uh, he would talk about, you know, read a poem a day, write a poem a day, oh, you know, write a half a page a day. Um, I can write a thousand words in an hour if what? I know. Oh yeah. I can, oh, the, yeah. That's your, 
it, your background. It comes from writing for newspapers where you're on deadline, you have to produce quickly. It's also just sort of the nature of getting in the flow of something um, really quickly. And, and if you, and so, so if you think about it, this book is, is a hundred thousand words. It's sort of, it's a novel length, um, but a little on the longer side of the novels. Um, If I wrote a pay, if I wrote a thousand words a day for 300 plus days, I'd have three of those Mm -hmm. in one year. Yeah. So, um, so actually it's not hard for me to produce a, a rough draft. Um, it's, it takes a little while then to turn that into a first draft that's readable, mm-hmm. um, which I'll, I'll give to my wife to read. Um, and then after that, it's the more lengthy process really of rethinking things that, that people point out to you, uh, either in the puzzle of the whodunit um, or in the characters. Um, you know, this character isn't believable or this character didn't really understand where they were coming from or they're a bundle of contradictions, or they're not really very, um, what's the word, sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wanted Rhett to have an edge, for example, but I didn't want her to be unsympathetic, unlikable. Mm-hmm. So walking that line is sometimes difficult, but I had, you know, look, if you're not having fun, it's really, really hard. Yeah. Fortunately, I was having fun all the time. Yeah, Cause you love this. writing because I just, it's where I feel comfortable. It's that mode. Everyone has to have a mode in which they feel for some people. It's the visual arts for some people. It's um, producing something like what you're doing here, where you've got a lot of moving parts, uh, but you're comfortable with mm-hmm. that mode. Um, writing by myself is the mode in which I'm most comfortable. There's this um, book, this called the artist's way. I don't know if you've heard of it by mm-hmm. Julia Cameron. Yeah. And that's one of the things that she recommends in terms of, and her, her book is about trying to tap into the inner artist that we all have an inner artist. And there's a creative element inside of us that we should try to express. And she recommends every day, a daily practice of just writing for 15, 20 minutes, drown out the the noise in your brain that says like, this is stupid, this sucks right. and just do it. Oh, and yeah. I've received a lot of value in that. And I don't consider myself a good writer or, but just in terms of clarity of thought or clarity of focus, I think is very helpful. And I've been surprised by the amount of, of, of ideas within me, Yep. you know, um, how, what made you want to write a mystery novel and more so because the themes of this book are about like embracing your independence and, um, but still being vulnerable and still being the heroine is the message more important or is it crafting, um, a solid mystery for you? Yeah, I think, I think there has to be both. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I'm, I'm often disappointed if, if there's a really good mystery, but there's not much point yeah. to the book itself that the characters aren't really you know, exploring anything in their natures, um, aren't confronting anything internal. Because I see, I always read books to get answers, to understand what this world is all about and try to understand and figure out my own inner struggles. Yeah, The puzzle is extremely important. I'll give you that. Yeah. I, I'm also disappointed if I read uh, Who Done It and I, and I get it too quickly. Yeah, Or if it's so complicated that it's like, Oh, this is a full-time job just to read this book. Um, <laughs> I, I, I try to strike that balance between something that's fun to, to try to figure out in terms of the puzzle, but it's not so overwhelming uh, that you're just, I, I, I have to put this down. It's too complicated. 
Um, at the same time, I will say that theme is one of the things I'm most interested in. So I'm not going to, you know, like I said, I tried to sit down and write just sort of a lighthearted, real quick mystery. And maybe I will write some of those some sometime. Um, but I really got into the characters and what they're struggling with and the themes that kept cropping up. The 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 poet who's who's killed at the beginning of the story, you know, she left um, behind sort of uh, poets, poems that she'd published and written to as clues to her psychology throughout the years. Um, there's, um, you know, Rat as she's trying to understand the, 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 the poetry that Wanda Hightower taught, uh, you know, she reads some of the poets and she starts to um, connect with what some of these writers were we're writing about the the romantic poets who are writing, you know, 200 years ago. So I got into reading a lot of their poetry and trying to put myself in their shoes and try to understand what they were trying to do with their art mm-hmm. and, and then weave that into the, the plot um, and the themes of this book. And so just like, you know, a, a painter who's maybe putting one layer on top of another, those layers start to get really interesting and um, that's to me is what what creates unity in a piece of art, as well as complexity mm-hmm. all at once, and what makes for interesting reading. Now, and not everyone will agree. I mean, some people will read, will try to read my book, and they'll say, you know, it's just too involved. I just, you know, and and I I respect that. You know, not everyone is after the same thing mm-hmm. when they sit down to read. Uh, but so far, the 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 folks who have read it and reviewed it have had really good things to say. And that's really encouraging Mm -hmm. because you can't always please the critics. Um, And, and, and even better, you know, people I know who didn't even know I did this have have said, Oh, I was really really impressed, Eric. I didn't know you could do that. And uh, better yet, you know, they've, they've talked to me about the book, what it made them think about what it made them feel. And, and so we connected on that deeper level. And I think that's important. You know, we hang out with our friends and even our family on often on a very superficial level because of, you know, just because of customs and, you know, don't express too much. Um, don't uh, be too vulnerable. And, and that's a shame, yeah. you know, I think. And, and so we have to find ways to connect on a deeper level because this is, um, we only go around the sun you know, so many times, and these people are so precious to us. Uh, we feel it. Um, we get teary-eyed just thinking about our colleagues, for example, or some of our uh, childhood friends. You know, we've known for so long. When you know the the ways to express that and connect are often pretty slim. So mm-hmm. I think art is one way we can connect. I feel like art is the legacy of humanity. Like this is the the truest expression and the most, I would say, valuable form of expression we can offer. And I think the the beauty is that it comes from within and the ability of, of you to being able to just transform a group of words and then create a novel out of it that has meaning, that has purpose, that has suspense, that creates real emotion inside of other people. I think that's a gift. Well, it, it's, it, it's a gift. It's also the result of, you know, teachers throughout the years, um, nurturing, writing, um, literature. I mean, the other side of the coin is just reading good works. And, you know, I'm so thankful for like the librarians in my elementary school, the teachers who would take us to the library and just say, pick out a book and read it, you know, and, 
And I didn't have, there wasn't a lot of policing of that. You know, I remember also in high school, my homeroom met in the library and I'd get there early to avoid the bullies. I'd get, <laughs> I, I'd like beeline it for the library, hang out with the other nerds who were there. And, you know, I could just read everything that Hemingway ever wrote or Faulkner, or I didn't even understand half of it, but yeah. the language was so cool to me. Like I, I loved what they could do with words, like you said. Yeah. And, um, and I'll, but I will add this too, you know, when someone reads a book, it's, it's a, it's a collaboration between the reader and the writer. It really is. You don't have to necessarily describe a character, you know, down to the last eyelash, because the reader will fill in gaps mm -hmm. and their, their imagination will participate yes. in the experience, which is cool. Cause people will come away with things that I didn't necessarily intend, but I'm, I'm, I'm cool with them having that experience with the story yeah. because I implied something and they kind of took it another few steps. But to me, that that's why I like to keep in touch with people who've read the book because I really like to hear how they saw mm -hmm. things and be okay with the diversity of experience in that. So, where? So, did you grow up in in what, South Carolina or North Carolina? So, I eventually found my way to North Carolina. I, North Carolina is really an adopted state for me because I went to college there. I went to Duke, and um, my met my wife. In um, actually, I met her in Alabama, which is where I grew up, though though she did not grow up there. She was doing an internship uh, in college. I was a bit older. I was working in Alabama b back in my home state uh, at a newspaper, and we got introduced primarily because I was going back to North Carolina to work. She was going to go back to North Carolina to go to school. and the, They're like, hey, both of you guys yeah, are going to be in the same state. <laughs> yeah. In fact, you'll be in the same area. So um, just a blind date. Uh, Wow. Yeah, that was cool. Did, was it a good first blind date? I'm assuming because you guys are still married. I, so she wouldn't necessarily say it was a great first date, but I would. And I think- um, What was your first impression of her? I thought she was just, I thought she was kind of um, a little bit aloof, which was, you know, was actually kind of attractive, right? Because, you know, not that she was, you know, gruff or, you know, in any way, but, you know, she was- a little guarded. I mean, this is a blind date. She doesn't really. Yeah. Um, but we, we got back um, after the date, I, I called her up um, at her where she was interning and I asked her if she would go out that night too. Oh, really? Yeah. Which was, was uh, probably the most desperate nerdy thing to do. <laughs> so you went on a blind date restaurant for lunch. For, oh, for lunch. And then you called her afterwards yeah. and said, Hey, let's, will you, will you come you out to, tonight? I asked her if she'd go to a movie that night, which she, she had other plans. She really did. Oh. Um, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless. That means you really liked her. I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah. And nonetheless, here you are. <laughs> we had, even though she couldn't go out on two dates with me the first day, oh, you know, 20 years later, we're, we're still going strong. Yeah. You talked um, about a professor and, and having mentors or writing uh, people who are in the writing world who encouraged and developed that in you. Can you share some of those early examples of what that looked like that helped you develop your craft and then spark real talent there? Yeah. Well, you know, I would say that it starts early. Um, 
if you, you know, I, I think about third grade, um, Mrs. Hicks, and she said, all right, we've got this, you know, this week's spelling words, everyone write a story and you have to use every word in the spell list of spelling words and maybe 15 spelling words. I don't know. And so, uh, she ended up, um, you know, picking her favorite story, which was my story. And I think I won a pack of M&Ms, which was like, whoa, I got candy at school, uh-huh. you know, Candy wasn't allowed at school. I don't even know if it was allowed during lunch period, honestly. And so uh, I guess I was always chasing the M&M. The candy. The candy <laughs> reward after that. But um, no, then, then uh, you know, different, different organizations sponsoring essay competitions. You might remember that from your school. Just an opportunity to, you know, try out your wings uh, writing. Um, I had um, teachers in, in, even in middle school, you know, we read really great short stories, classic short stories like The Lady and the Tiger uh, or The Velt um, by Ray Bradbury or uh, some of these classic stories. It really made me fall in love with the short story form. And you know, in, in college, um, I was writing, I took three short story writing classes from the same instructor, uh, Elizabeth Cox, who's herself a writer. And after all, was it because you enjoyed her? I enjoyed her, her approach, and um, there weren't a lot of writers at Duke teaching. It just so happened that um, you know her, her classes lined up with my schedule, and I really liked her. And and, and there were always other good students in those workshops. And after three years of taking those classes of in in the short story, she said, "Eric, I think you're a novelist." <laughs> Because really, because I couldn't write a short story. Uh, all my, all my, <laughs> she's like, <laughs> I, could, I think you're a novelist. She could have said, she could have said, I, I've decided, Eric, you're, you're going to make a great plumber, <laughs> you know. But she didn't say that. Um, but I think what she was saying is probably my short stories seem like chapters in a book. They didn't seem like, uh, they didn't seem like standalone stories. Yeah. And I've always admired people who can who can do a good short story. I still read short stories all the time. So was that almost like another validation point for you? Like, hmm, I am a novelist. I, I, it really did help me to kind of recalibrate and say, all right, I don't have to beat my head against the wall with this form that's driving me crazy. It's like, you know, a visual artist who maybe tries out different medium, media, yeah. they, they, you know, oils or acrylics or, you know, watercolors until they find something that really suits them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think long form, um, suits you suits me better. Um, I think in terms of, of, of themes and motifs and I can't write in the hyper condensed way that a short story writer can. I hope to get better at that. I'd like to, to write a good short story before I die. Really? I would, I would love to because I think, I think those, they, they last in a way that, you know, novels take up a lot of print and paper. Um, a short story can be read very quickly, anthologized. People read them in school more often and they'll remember them. Mm-hmm. Do you, did you remember reading The Lottery by Shirley Jackson? Did you ever read that? That's mm-hmm. one that a lot of kids remember because it's, it's a real, it's kind of a dystopian it's almost like a Hunger Games scenario, but in, in a real short. Condensed. Tense, yeah. Um, so I, I, I really think that, um, you know, in terms of my mentors, they, they gave me opportunities to try and fail, mm-hmm. which is how you grow. Um, you try things, you fail, you try new things. 
Um, even those failures may be successes if you go back and look at them a different way. Um, I had um, the privilege of working uh, for a writer, a Duke professor after Duke. Um, he was, uh, his name is Reynolds Price and he um, was in a wheelchair. And so he hired someone uh, different every year to live in his house, uh, help him uh, with all the daily chores and, and so on, uh, help him TA his courses that he taught. But you got to watch someone who was a, a published author. He published about a book a year uh, and, and understand what his routine was and, and sort of learn from that, try to emulate that. Um, but, you know, one thing that he always said is, um, you know, if you get yourself to the stage, you will perform like an actor performs when they get on stage as a writer. If you can just get in front of the keyboard and just get started, um, not necessarily with the finest prose that's ever been written, but just, you know, just some discovery writing, I call it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I've got this character, Red Swinson. What does she look like? Well, she looks like that. And I'm typing this almost like a conversation and that discovery writing then helps you understand characters, helps you understand plot. And pretty soon you're writing scenes. Yeah. You're, you're saying, what would happen if Rhett talked to Otis um, in his studio? And, you know, you, you cre that's how I get started in the morning. And if you do that enough times, pretty soon you've got the skeleton of a book. And it's just a matter of, um, you know, working the edges mm -hmm. of it. So in terms of, you know, one little comment, yeah. like what he made there as a mentor can really, um, can really transform how you approach uh, your work. Yeah. Because it adds a lot of certainty, right? Mm -hmm. If you get yourself to the stage, you will perform. Okay. If I get myself to the stage, yeah. <laughs> I'll perform. And then you just start writing and writing. And then when you have certainty, you have this belief, this is going to happen. And now yeah. you take action, massive action. And then the results typically are great, positive. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I wrote a little something about how I don't believe in writer's block. I wrote a little blog about it. You don't uh, believe in it? I don't believe in writer's block. I've not really experienced writer's block. Really? No, you just never. Everything's, really? Now, it doesn't mean that I'm sitting here and I've got a story in my head and I'm, you know, this genius who, I, I most of the time when I sit down, I don't know what I'm going to write, but you get into that flow. It's just like, let's say you're going on a run yeah. um, or walk even. And do you have to map out your walk before you start walking? No. No. These days, I mean, you have an app to get yourself home if you get right. lost, but you know, you're just, you know, the first step and then the next one and then, oh, I'll go this way. And pretty soon you've, you've done a, you know, two or three mile walk or run or what have you. And you didn't necessarily have every step planned out. Uh, you might not have even really gotten very excited about running, but you, or the, or whatever your exercise is, but you, you just know intuitively that if you do it again, you'll be glad you did it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's sort of almost of a muscle memory yeah. of what you've done helps you get started the next time because you know, it's going to result in something, a good feeling. Mm -hmm. And if I can go do my little morning writing ritual, then I, I do feel energized for all my other work that day. And you mentioned feeling like free and you have this ability to, well, I think that's the other thing is you do have a separate nonprofit career, right? And you do have, um, a, a full, of a, a, a full responsibility at work and it's, you know, writing a novel isn't your primary source of income. So that must 
provide you some sort of flexibility, some sort of creative um, license to say, you know what? I can fail. I can fail. Oh yeah. Does that, was that the, would you say like how you felt when writing this book? Do you feel like it makes you better? Well, it, I will say that, you know, I tried the full-time writing thing at one point years ago. Um, the Actually the year after I worked for for Reynolds Price. You're like, I'm doing this. Yeah. I saved up a bunch of money because I lived in this house. I was able to, to save up money that way. And I took almost a year off to, um, at the time I was working on screenplays. Um, and I tell you what, I, I got so depressed. Really? You're yeah. like, I came to the stage and I did not perform. Well, I, I could do it for like an hour <laughs> or two, but then, you know, there's the whole rest of the day and it's like, oh, I'm kind of out of steam or for writing. Um, I'm, I'm not in my dream mode anymore. I'm not in the flow. I'm not in the flow. I'll go play horseshoes. Uh-huh. And, and I got, and I, I just found I'm someone who needs, I need, I need people to interact with. I need, um, I need full-time work that's more uh, interactive socially. Mm -hmm. um, that's actually why COVID was actually quite difficult for me. Really? Because even though I've worked remotely for a decade now, um, I really you know, I was out in the past and now resuming again, uh, taking trips, um, to, um, to meet for, with, uh, colleagues on projects or meet with partners, you know, that all came to a stop. Yeah. And once again, I was in my room by myself, you know, yeah. doing my thing and, um, I just don't like it. So I, what do you do to get yourself like, and you didn't have the ability to then go and socialize during COVID. How do you draw yourself out of it? What are those techniques that you use before in your past when you were younger and now? So, you know, when I was during COVID, I mean, I just sort of survived. I mean, I, fortunately <laughs> with my family, yeah. I mean, I had my wife and kids at home. They were doing school at home the whole time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, but they were a little bit older. So yeah. it was, we didn't have to hound them or anything, but you know, just there's so much value to sitting down at the dinner table and hearing what everyone did that day. Like everyone brings a story. Oh, I, I talked to this, you know, partner or this, I met with the, and, you know, or I, this thing happened at school and there wasn't a lot of that for well over a year. Yeah. I, it's more like, well, what did you see on TV or what did you see on CNN.com? Oh, I saw that too. End of, end of conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think any, any artist needs some input, yeah. needs to, you know, have the thing that you the need stuff, data points. Yeah. The stuff of story, <laughs> yeah. you know, conversations you overhear at the cafe, uh, or I like that you said that the stuff of story. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have that sort of input. Uh, you don't have to write it all down, but you have to make note of it and it will trigger things in your, um, in your work. Uh, but no, I, I love my, my nonprofit work because, um, it's, it's hyper relevant. Like I am, who knows if anything I write will actually change someone's life, but I know that the work I do creating it futures does change yeah. people's lives. Uh, gets them um, on a, a, a career path or learning path, doing something they love and how that transforms not only their, um, their outlook, but their economics. Yes. You know, we've been doing- Their mobility, mm -hmm. their prosperity, their future. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, it, it's just, 
I think sometimes we take for granted that we're making money doing something we like. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people never find that or they're, they're, they're making peanuts doing something they hate. Yes. And, and that really breaks my heart because I think everybody has something they'd be really good at, but they might not have had exposure to it um, the way I did with my writing and my, my teachers. In fact, I look back at school and I'm kind of haunted by the fact that so many kids in that type of school environment, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, um, they, they, weren't, they weren't finding the thing that yeah. was for them. I mean, I see some of my classmates now who are doing extraordinary things that they discovered how to do well after school. I mean, one of my classmates, he's a, he's a sculptor, a, a glass blower, mm -hmm. you know, and he wasn't finding that in math class. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I could go on and on with, with all these really talented um, classmates and it's amazing what they've done, but Sometimes they've, they've done it despite what, it's like that's that Paul Simon song, you know, if I look back to all the things I learned in high school, it's a matter, it's, it's a wonder I can think at all, mm. and, you know, because I mean, I loved high school because, because that environment was perfect for me. And I love those subjects, but I think so many of the kids who were next to me in the desk were just bored out of their minds. It wasn't their thing. And, and I love that creating IT futures helps a large number of people find their thing. Yes. And I think in high school, you, you found your thing and, and then you consistently went back to it and you knew how to develop in that way. And if you don't have that, if you don't know, Hey, I like reading, Hey, this, this helps me this, you know, hearing input from other authors and other times gives me something, then I can imagine it leaves a lot of young people feeling very lost, young people feeling like they're inadequate because they just haven't found that thing yet. And sometimes it just takes life. Sometimes it just takes people and experiences to connect the dots. And I, I um, agree with you. I'm so glad we found, I found that as well at Comte and Creating IT Futures is the ability to say, man, we get to help people yeah. and it's in a great field and they get educated and skill sets and have the ability to earn more opportunity for themselves and their families. Yeah. And, and then having the flexibility of, of, of working for a company that has the culture that we have allowed me to dig deeper inside myself and then offer more to the world. Right. Like that's the, that's, I think the ultimate benefit is, um, you're able to then tap into more deeper resources inside of yourself and bring it to fruition. A a absolutely. I, I think there's a, there's a, a great short story. Um, I, I'm trying to think who, who wrote it and it'll come to me, but the name of the um, story is called love is not a pie. And it's, it's kind of a scandalous story in some respects. I love scandalous stories. <laughs> well, it, it's about, uh, it's about this person remembering her parents and how her parents, actually there was another person in the relationship. It was a, it was a three-person relationship. A throuple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I grew up in North Alabama. We didn't have that sort of <laughs> we thing. We don't know what throuples are. We don't, do, we don't say things like that. Um, so, um, it you know, it was a really fascinating story just by that token. But, you know, the point of the narrator was that, you know, I guess she said something to her mother at some point about it, about, you know, isn't this wrong? You're cheating on dad or whatever. And, and for that 
what that mother said in this fictional story, she said, you know, love is not a pie. And um, taking that away from that story. Meaning when you take love, it doesn't detract. Right. The, the whole point, <laughs> it, it, I'm not, I'm not here advocating <laughs> threeples, thruples. Thruples here in any way, shape or form. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, but I love the saying because in so much, there's this idea that love or affection or any resources that it's a zero sum game, yes. that there's just this finite amount. And, um, so if we have our colleague, you know, if we have our employees doing that, they won't be able to do that. And so it's a bad idea. Um, the fact is when you have happy employees, they can be ha hyperproductive, yes. uh, not just in the number of hours they work, but in the quality of their work. Uh, I mentioned, you know, writing a thousand words in an hour. That comes from being in the flow and something I enjoy. And if you can, if you can create uh, an environment of flow for your employees, the way our employer does. Um, I think that um, you get so much more out of them. And when they're, you know, when we have energy, we have more energy than we started out with is yes. what I'm trying to say. Yes. So love is not a pie. Also energy is not this finite thing where, you know, once you use it up, it's gone. Yeah. It can't uh, be created or destroyed. Right. In, in real life, in real life. Yeah, it might be, but in, in the material <laughs> world, you know, you know, energy is transformed if it's neither neither gain nor destroyed. But but in 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 human relationship, in 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 work life too, I think having positive energy in in one facet of your life can really create even more energy. Yeah. For other things that that then it's that that constant positive feedback loop, right? Which um which is what we want, right? Like and to your example. Uh, Working at Creating IT Futures fulfills you. You get a lot of satisfaction um, and it, it, it really feeds you. And then you're able to produce a book, which will then, it feeds other people. It, it fulfills a mystery need. It allows people to identify with the deepness that you offer in the book. I think those, this is a very like, tangible example of that. Well, I feel so, I, I definitely feel like having a job where I love the people I work with. Yeah. Um, I love the, the work that we do. I see the uh, the outcomes of it. I mean, I even give monetarily to yeah. my employees, you know, which I can't say I've done that for every nonprofit I've worked for. Right. You know, a lot of times it's, it's in the past, it's you're been like, a job. Nah, you don't need my money. <laughs> it, right. You've got my time and you pay me for it. But um, it's so true. You know, but, but I mean, when you believe in it, when you really see it doing great work. Uh, yeah. Describe to the audience what you do. So, so um, I, I, I create programs um, and I, um, I create curriculum to help people um, gain knowledge and learning in the IT field mm -hmm. starting when they're young. So uh, middle school is sort of the earliest we go. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're trying to create more and more programs and curricula that, um, you know, get students excited about tech. Not every student's going to get on a pathway right. to learning uh, tech as sort of a full-time occupation. But we know that knowing technology can help you in whatever you do. Yeah, every student should know tech. Every student is 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 facing tech. Absolutely, they are using tech, and so it's it's really important. I would say more important now than ever to understand and be intelligent with technology. Absolutely. Um, so, and, and honestly, you know, I really see my broader mission as 
helping young people discover their interest and passion Mm -hmm. so that if they're doing that, they're not doing the negative risk-taking things that can get them in trouble. If they can get on a path and get excited about a destination, they're not going to be distracted by some of these things that can, in some cases, actually destroy them. Yes. Um, We've created soft skills programs to help young adults understand how to comport themselves at work differently from at home, even to how, how to be in an interview so they can get the job in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think we take for granted if, if you're, if you grow up the child of professionals, you're learning a lot of skills without even knowing it, Yes, how to, how to, how to talk, how to act in a professional way. Uh, that's going to be, um, useful you know, for you when yeah. you're looking for employment or even applying for colleges yep. um, versus if you grew up in a home and where you don't have family dinners and you're not looking at people in the eye when you're talking to them. Yep. It's a different story. It's a different ball game. A- absolutely. Um, that those kids are going to be way more successful who have had been clued in, in those ways. So we need to be intentional about that. Um, we need to help students, um, you know, see what the applications are of these skills and knowledge, mm-hmm. not just, okay, here's what's inside a computer, memorize that. Uh, we have to show them sort of what the applications are. So now we're creating a middle school um, program um, class room curriculum called Launch, um, Cyber Prep Launch, which is um, really starts with those cool technology applications. Uh, it's going to be free for teachers. Uh, we're going to work with a limited number of pilot um, schools this fall, high schools or middle schools, middle schools. Okay. Uh, we think it actually could work for some high schools. It's going to be free. High, you know, high school teachers can use it too, but for high school, we also have, um, higher level courses that require, um, uh, a much more breadth of knowledge and, um, actually certification exams that are industry, um, qualified. So, um, that's that's something that we're we're really heavily focused on is how can we get some of these young people, many who won't go to college, um, on a career path so that they can be earning, yeah, um, right out of high school if they so choose. They can work their way through college if they choose to go that route. But we know that for, of low income, uh, low income students, only twenty percent um, will complete college in four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, so you, you run into a lot of students out there, a lot of young adults who have a little bit of college and quite a bit of debt. Yeah. And we want to get them to the point where they are, you know, working their way through a degree and finishing that degree. Mm -hmm. Um, and one way to do it is to give them marketable skills while they're in high school. And at work, you actually, um, were the leader of the leadership challenge series and our creating IT futures team of saying these are the leadership values that inspire and that guide or um, push us and develop us. Why was that important to you? So that was, that was discovered actually by, by our, our CEO, Charles Eden. Uh, He, he looked around for, you know, what are some of the best models for leadership? And this one had been around since the eighties. And so it had a real staying power. It was mm-hmm. still very popular. And we looked at it closely and we really liked it because it had some core tenets about how to, um, how to be at work, the mm. things we should be doing. And, it, and like I, I mentioned about writing screenplays, uh, it wasn't so much about beliefs. It was about things we should be doing. 
Yeah. Uh, in some cases, things we should be saying. Um, so, so for example, encouraging the heart is something we can do at work. We can pat people on the back, tell them a job well done, do it publicly so that they get the recognition they deserve. That gives them energy yeah. to do more of the same. You know, uh, challenging the pro the process is another core tenet of uh, of that philosophy of leadership. Um, you know, um, creating a vision. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of these things are things that we can all do in some way. You don't have to be the CEO. You don't have to even be a manager to um, uh, lead by example, model the way is 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 how that's expressed. Mm. So it. I, th I think leadership challenge is a really good model. And so for anyone listening, right, and hearing your your journey, your story, and then also witnessing the fruits of that, what is the takeaway that you want people to know the most? Wow. Um, like I said, I'm not much of an evangelist, so I'm not used to talking in this way. I talk a lot, but I don't usually talk about sort of philosophy or, or spirituality. Um, I, I would say that we have to count our blessings, really understand what went into, what was nurtured in us by other people. How can we do that too? Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think that most, those of us who are adults, we sort of, um, you know, we're embattled, you know, for the past year and some change, it's been about COVID and just getting Surviving. through that. Yeah. Yes. But what can we do now that we're coming out of COVID? Where can we direct our energies in, into things that will give us even more energy? Yeah. You know, what are some things, for example, my wife really loves to cook meals for people who, you know, maybe they have an illness or they're, they're embattled in some way and they need, they need that. That looks like a lot of work to me. <laughs> She's like, no, it's not work to me. And, and it's, it's fun. And I get a lot of satisfaction from it and it gives me more energy than I started out with. If we could look to those things, um, we might find that we can give a lot more than we thought because in, in giving those things, we, um, we get so much energy from it. I think it's kind of a cliche to say, well, I, I, you know, I, I volunteer because I get so much more out of it. Um, but that's true for a lot of people, especially, true. especially the volunteer type who need to give, yeah, right? Like right. there's, there's receiving that comes from it. I don't think all sort sorts of like giving is necessarily altruistic. I think right. it's more so, is it filling a void and a need in yourself? And does it offer something of benefit to someone else? A absolutely. And I think it's okay if it's fun. Yeah. It's right? okay if you like it. <laughs> I, I grew up from, you know, my parents were Midwestern and Lutheran. And it was like, if you're having fun, you might be doing something wrong. Naughty. Mm. You know, that was sort of the, the, the ethos. If you listen to Prairie Home Companion, yeah. in those old episodes, it's totally true. Yeah. You know, you can feel guilty for enjoying things. But, well, that, even that term guilty pleasure, yeah. like pleasure, there's something wrong with pleasure. Right. And I think what you're saying is find the thing that brings you pleasure yeah. and tune into that, whatever that is, Play right? Writing, cooking, talking, leading, what, yeah, tune into your strengths. What is that for you? A absolutely. So I would say that's the one thing, play to your strengths and, and good things will happen. And not just focus on all your deficiencies mm -hmm. and all the ways that you're not measuring up or 
you know, focus on, on what, what you're, what you're good at, what you want to get better at, uh, what you enjoy doing. That's where you're going to find that flow. That's where you're going to, you're going to achieve something that not only that you're proud of, that probably other people will take notice of too and say, thank you for doing that. Thank you for writing that book. Thank you for doing that podcast. Thank you for cooking that meal for me, mm-hmm. you know, when, when we were going through surgery uh, or what have you. So. And have you found that within yourself? Like when you look back at this book and why did you choose Eric Loden instead of your, your real so name? There's a, there, there's a terrific nonfiction writer named Eric Larson. Oh, uh, he spells his first name with a K, but he spells his last name the same way. And you're just going to confuse the hell out of the Amazon okay. algorithms if you <laughs> if you take someone's name like that. Okay. Um, so um, that's an old family name. But um, so when you look back at, are, do you feel that sense of gratification, that fulfillment of, I did this, I created this and brought it to light, and and perhaps maybe even someone already told you, thank you for writing this book. Yeah, um, ab- absolutely. I think with any project. Um, you, you're looking for that, you know, whether it's a curriculum you're writing for work or, you know, a cake you're baking for someone, you know, to, yeah. does it taste good? <laughs> yeah. Bring something to fruition. Um, you want an audience for it. I mean, I've been writing fiction for years and years and years. I'm 50 years old. Finally, I decided, you know what, Eric, you're, you're turning 50. Uh, you need to publish something because writers need readers and, it's not really, you're not really taking it across the goal line until you challenge yourself. Oh, that's so good. Writers need readers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm, I'm really glad I did it already. Even if I don't sell another copy, uh, I'm really, I'm really excited to have it, you know, in the, in the flesh, in the flesh. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Thank you for writing this book. It is inspiring. It is inspiring, at least Thank you. Um, to me and I know to other people as well who are saying, I'm in the daily grind. I have a family. I'm working, but I know he did it and I can too. You can set a date, give yourself a deadline if that helps. I think deadlines help a lot. Really? They, 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 do they, do they stress you out? Yeah. They do. I'm the, or, or I'll wait till the, I'm a procrastinator too. I hate to admit it, but it is true. But didn't you give yourself a goal during a Christmas break to I do did. your first podcast? I did. You gave yourself a time limit to do one. And didn't you do it? I did. I, you're okay. You're right. <laughs> there you go. Gotcha. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing. And can't wait for the next one. March 20. 22. March. Okay. So March, this March coming up, 20 yeah. March of 2022. Yep. Book two. Book two. In the Red Swinson mystery series. Red Swinson. And there's going to be three total or? There'll be at least three. Wow. Okay. If it's God's will. If it's God's <laughs> will. All right. Well, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Andrea. This was great. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.